0: Don't you think on this subject this morning, guilty as charged, guilty as charged. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful, Father, for the spirit that indwells it. We're grateful for the spirit that inspired it. Now, Father, I pray come to our hearts and instruct it to our hearts. Father, thank you for our time this morning in class. And now, Father, we pray that from our time together studying your word, the fruit of that study, would bear witness to the needs of our hearts. Father, we thank you for a calling on our lives, but also realize that without your grace, without your strength, without your help, without your leadership, we'll end up right here in Hosea 4. We need you. Father, we pray. Guide us now as we walk through the text. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Homiletics 201 this morning, we all wrote a message. Uh, Miss Sarah, where are you? Where? Come on, be bold, girl. Uh, We're doing uh, something a little bit different now in Homiletics 201. So, for those of you who have already taken the 200 section of Homiletics, stop telling these new students what they need to be doing because they're not doing anything that you've been doing. It's all different. So instead of taking one big, giant, large, exegetical study, we've broke it down into four. And so uh, every two or three weeks now, they're bringing to us what we're calling sermon starters. And uh, so I asked this morning, who would be willing to bring your sermon starter to us in which you'll perform a background study and the exegetical work that you all are accustomed to doing and then give that sermon summary sheet and we'll look over it together. And so Sarah, being full of bravery and courage, said, I'll go. And so we took Sister Sarah's outline and absolutely decimated it. And then we started over. And as we started over together as a class, we began to observe some things within the text that the sermon should be built on. And there's a key word right here in verse number one that I want you to see that everything else is going to flow from for the first six verses. Notice in Hosea chapter 4 verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy. Or some of your translations may render that case. Whether it's rendered controversy or case, it's from that word that we begin to understand what God is doing in the text. God is bringing charges against His people. As a matter of fact, expressly, God is bringing charges against the priest. God is bringing charges against those who had been entrusted with his word and they're not being faithful. And so God begins to speak to them first as he's calling out his nation and his people for turning their back on him. And so we begin to think about what's involved in a courtroom. What's involved when charges are given? And the first thing that kind of came to my mind, I don't know why it just popped in there, the ADD took over. But I can, you know, you remember if you were around then, '94, '95. If you wasn't, Google it. Around '94 and '95, there was a court case that just kind of took America by storm. It was the O.J. Simpson trial. And in the O.J. Simpson trial, you know, somewhere about June of 1994, we turn on our televisions and we see this white Bronco running down I-10 in Los Angeles, and it's just a rolling down the highway and. As we watch this scene, we see police car and next police car and next police car. And before it's over with, after about 30 minutes of coverage, it looks like the Blues Brothers scene. And car after car after car is following this guy. And it's from this dramatic chase on television that the American population just began to lean into this controversy, began to lean into this court case. And we all wanted to know what was going to happen next because it had everything that a, a great television drama would have it had a, a key figure. Had the antagonist and the protagonist, had somebody very popular and famous, and everybody wanted to know did OJ do it or not? And so you think about these courtroom dramas and you turn on your television and you see these episodes kind of play out, and I I want us to think about what's involved in the scenes. What, What are the scenes, rather, of a courtroom drama? Well, there's five things that's true of every great courtroom drama. First, when you have the charges. If you keep your Bibles open, I want you to look back at verse number one. These are the charges from God towards those priests. Here's what he says. "O children of Israel from the Lord has a controversy. I've got a case with the inhabitants of the land. And here here they are. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love. There's no knowledge of God in the land. So let's kind of unpack that. Let's walk down through this. First of all, who are the inhabitants of the land? Well, the inhabitants of the land will be God's people. They're the chosen people of God. They're the people of God who should have known the law of God and the commands of God and the words of God. As a matter of fact, God had essentially bent over backwards, if you will, to reveal Himself to His people. He had made covenant with His people. And yet, time and time again, in this cycle of sin, they continue to turn their back on God, not heed the words of God, not heed the commands of God. And now, here they are standing in direct, the direct line of God's judgment. And why are they standing in the line of God's judgment? Well, look at what they're doing. First of all, there's no knowledge of God in the land. Now, think about it. God says there's no knowledge of me. But this is the same God who's given them the Old Testament, who's given them the commandments, who's made covenant with them, who sent them priests and has sent them prophets. So how can God say there's no knowledge of me in the land when God gave them all of these resources to know him? Well, it wasn't because God wasn't giving them the resources. It was because they weren't heeding. God says there's no knowledge of me in the land. You're saturated with my truths. You're saturated with my commands. You know my laws. I have communicated with you. I have sent you priest. I have sent you prophet, but you choose to not hear what I am doing among you. My goodness, how many times have I been there? God gave me his book. God gave me his word. There's 66 books in this book, Genesis to Revelation. He's communicated. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's perfect. It's pure. Not only that, as a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches me that now inside of my heart, the Holy Spirit dwells. So now I have somebody inside of me guiding me into all truth. I have someone inside of me convicting me of sin, righteousness, and judgment all the time. And yet... While God still gives me the word inspired by His Spirit and implants the Holy Spirit in my heart through the work of Jesus Christ, I can still choose not to obey His leading. Why? Because any you, anytime you choose sin and you don't choose God, it keeps you ignorant of the things of God in your life. This is exactly where we see the people of God having every reason to know they were just as ignorant as a people group who had never heard does that not get our attention this morning? God is essentially saying, you're just as ignorant of me as if you were a people who never knew me. You're just as ignorant of me as a people who's never heard me. And God's got a problem with that, doesn't he? He says, these are the charges I have against you. You have no knowledge of me in the land. Well, every courtroom drama has five things. The first one is the charge the second scene we see in the courtroom drama would be the evidence. Because, I mean, you can't have charges without evidence, right? And So look in verse 2. There's the evidence. God says, oh, I've, I've got the dirt on you. There's swearing. There's lying. There's murder. There's stealing. There's committing adultery. Now look at this. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Have you noticed here in verse number two that all these things are dealt dealt with by Jesus in Matthew 5? In the swearing and the taking of oaths, but also in in the conduct that's not becoming of a Christ follower and a kingdom citizen of heaven, Jesus speaks to that in Matthew 5. In the lying and the lack of integrity, Jesus speaks to that in Matthew 5. In murder, Jesus speaks to that in Matthew 5. And here's the thing, there are individuals who would say, well, I've not killed anybody. Jesus says if you take anger in your heart towards someone or if you say rakah or if you say you fool you're in danger of the fire of hell. Our words are murderous sometimes, aren't they? Say things we shouldn't say. Act in anger in ways we should never act. Murderous. Look at the next statement he says. Not only is there stealing and murdering in the land but also you commit adultery some would say well I've been faithful to my wife all my life I've never been with another man I've never been with another woman How, whatever the context and however it applies to you but Jesus speaks to that in Matthew 5 too doesn't he Jesus said I tell you if you take thought of a woman in your heart you've already committed adultery with her in your heart if you think these thoughts you know think about it there's not anything that's ever done with our hands and our feet that isn't first conceived in the mind Do you never lay in the bed at night and your hands just kind of detach themselves like it and run out, or thing, sorry, it was the clown. Or run out like thing and go do their little bidding and then come reattach themselves to you by the time you wake up. You don't lay in the bed at night and while you're asleep, your feet just say, well, let's go get in mischief. He'll never know we're gone. And at night, they just go running about doing all the sinful things. And someone comes and says, do you realize where your feet were last night? It's absurd. Why? Because the hands and the feet, the lips, the tongue, the body never does anything that the mind first doesn't conceive and tell it to do. Why does Jesus deal with these things of the mind and the heart of Matthew 5? Because I'm telling you, the real physical act of lying, murdering, stealing, committing adultery, it all starts in the heart. That's the evidence against God's people, the condition of their heart. And notice why they're doing that. God says, you've broken all the bounds of my word. I got a little story. When I was a kid, I think I've shared this at Ebenezer, so if you've heard it, just act like you had not When I was a kid coming up, y'all don't know this, but uh, the clock that runs the known universe is at 715 Oak Grove Road. I don't care You care what the atomic clocks in Colorado, Colorado tell you. I'm telling you, the clock that runs in the known universe is at 715 Oak Grove Road. What do I mean by that? Well, Jerry Blanton, my dad, he didn't care what your watch said. He didn't care what the President's watch said. He didn't give a rip what the Emperor of China's watch said. When he looked to his left and looked through that kitchen from his couch and that blue glowing watch clock on the microwave When it turned 11, it was 11 everywhere. And so when I first get my license, he says, son, when that clock hits 11, you better be in this house. Okay, got it. I go out, do my thing. I was never a speed demon. As a matter of fact, I got pulled over one night for going too slow. True story. Never been a speed demon. Never necessarily been one to push the limits and the bounds of what I've been asked to do at least by my dad. I had a healthy fear of my dad. By the way, parents, if you're doing your job right, your children should have a healthy fear of you. Nonetheless, so I go about doing my thing. And I walk in the door, and you could see that clock from two angles. He's on the couch. He can see it to his left. And when you walk in the door and go through the living room, you can see it around the other side of the wall. And so from two different angles, we're both looking at the same clock. 11.02. I lose my license for a week. You want to absolutely take the wind out of a 17-year-old sales? That'll do it right there. Oh, my gosh. I called that man everything but holy in my mind. I hated his guts for it couldn't stand him for it i thought how over the top how unfair for two minutes you're going to take my license for an entire week not 24 hours not 48 hours not 72 hours a week and i can't even give you the hours because i can't count that high two minutes is going to cost me a week here's what my dad knew that i didn't know there was a lot attached to those two minutes Obedience was attached to those two minutes. Trust was attached to those two minutes. Belief was attached to those two minutes. My life was attached to those two minutes. Protection was attached to those two minutes. See, those two minutes, 120 seconds, weighed more in the mind of my dad than they ever did in the mind of a 17-year-old Stephen. Now, where are you going with all that, preach? Here's where I'm going. When you forget the heart of God for you, and the purpose of His laws for you, you're tempted to break the bounds of His laws and forget why He ever put them in place to begin with. God establishes His laws to protect you and create a framework by by which and from which you might know Him. And when you question God's heart for you, and you push those bounds, and you cross those lines, and you transgress the things He says do not do, or you omit the things He says for you to do, you break the bounds of God. And why do I ever break the bounds of God? Because I don't trust His heart. The evidence against God's people in this courtroom drama was, you don't trust me anymore. You break your bounds and you break my laws because you think your way's better and you no longer trust me. Now that comes out in a number of ways. It'll come out in swearing. It'll come out in lying. It'll come out in murder. It'll come out in stealing. It'll come out in committing adultery. But it all starts when in your mind you've decided my way's best always best. that was the evidence against them that's why god was bringing charges against them thirdly what's the next scene we see in a courtroom drama well there's got to be charges and there's some evidence there but also there's some victims if it's a crime there's a victim of the crime look if you would in verse three and notice the victims in verse number three the bible says the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish All the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. I've used this phrase before. I don't even know where it originated from, but it's still true, no less. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, cost you more than you were willing to give. See, before Hosea gave us this, Joel had already came to the people of God. One of those prophets, they were ignoring And Joel essentially tells them, I sent famine. God says, I sent famine. That didn't get your attention. I'm going to send the locust. That didn't get their attention. I'm going to dry up the rain. That didn't get your attention. So who are the victims of the sin of God's people? Well, even the earth now cries out against them. The land suffers because of their disobedience. All who dwell in the land languish because of their disobedience. The beast of the field, they have nothing to eat because of their disobedience. By the way, if you're living in an agri-based society, where are you going to get your meat from when your meat can't be nourished either? You're living in an agri-based society. Where are you going to get your crops from when there's no rain to grow them? You're living in an agri-based society. Where are you going to get your fish from when the rains have stopped and the creeks have dried up and the ponds have dried up and the lakes have dried up and there's no more bodies of water anywhere? So what's the point? Here's what you need to remember when you've chosen to break God's bounds in your life. Sin's always gonna affect more than you. You see, sometimes we, we just kind of convince ourselves, I ain't hurting nobody. It's my thing, it's my deal. I'm gonna do it. And so you cross that line, you bust that boundary, you run through that fence that God put up and you don't stop to think, what's gonna get out of this pasture when I break that fence down? Who's it going to affect? How's it going to change the lives of others around me? There's a lot sitting uptown today in the Henderson County lockup who are faced with those realities every day. But when they were making their choices, they never considered all that. See, that's the lie and the deception of sin. That you can go out and do what you want to do the way you want to do it. It's not going to affect anybody. There will be no consequences. And the same devil who whispers into your heart, Do it. It There's also the same devil after you've done it who will come to you and say, you've done it now. You've done it now. The victims of their sin had a ripple effect and that's the nature of sin as a whole. Now an entire nation has been crippled because the minds and the hearts of God's people have not turned to God. Well, if there's a victim, what's the fourth scene? Well, the camera now turns to the guilty. Look in verse 4. Who's to be blamed? Where does judgment start then? Now for all of us as uh, preachers and teachers of God's word, this ought to be eye-opening. Verse 4. Yet let no one contend. Listen, listen to God. This is as if God is saying, hey, 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 shh. Because what happens after you blow it? I coached my little boy's seven and eight uh, football team. And when they blow an assignment and they all get to the sideline after it's been third in a bus ride, and we called the perfect play, in my humble but accurate opinion. We called the perfect play, and some kid, because he wanted to do his own thing, went out and tried to be the hero, and now 11 players on the sideline are zeros. What do they do when they get to the sideline? It's your fault. You didn't get your block. No, it's your fault. You didn't run the right route. No, it's your fault. You bobbled a snap. That's what's happening right now in Israel. Who's to blame? Why, why is there no rain? Must be in stinking Levites. Who, who's to blame? There's no, no, no fish to catch anymore. There's no food anywhere. It's stinking government. Because it's always their fault. And so maybe the nation Again, we have no reason necessarily to believe this in this text, just trying to think through the implications. Why is God quieting the people? Stop fighting. There's only one to blame. Verse 4, let no one contend. Let none accuse. I know who's responsible. See, when you think everybody else is to blame, God knows, God knows. Verse 4, here's my contention. Here's my problem. It's with you, priest. My people forgot my word and you chose to go in the flow of their corruption. My people forgot my laws and you chose to be silent instead of declare my righteousness. My people forgot my truths and you chose to join them instead of contend for me. I've got a problem with you. The Bible teaches us that judgment starts in the house of God. The Bible teaches us in the book of James. Woe to you. Don't you be many masters. You'll receive the greater condemnation as you teach God's word. And here's why some of that condemnation can come upon us if we're not careful. It's always going to be more convenient to tell somebody what they want to hear instead of what they should hear. And by the way, we never have a right to go out and be God's jerks. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was not all grace. He was not all truth at least in how he proclaimed himself to the people. He was full of grace and truth. He had it all. But he always knew how to keep it in balance. When he was with a Pharisee, my stars, he does not mince words in Matthew 23. And yet when he's with the woman at the well, he's patiently talking with her in John 4. He always carries the right balance. And in the fullness of his grace and in the fullness of his truth, he always knows how to express both in the right balance. But he's also faithful to tell you where you messed up. That's who we are. Faithful to preach and teach the word of God. Faithful to say things that are hard to say and hard to hear. Let me give you an example. This past week, without going into any detail, I have the opportunity to serve as a chaplain with the Henderson County Sheriff's Office. This past week, there was a tragic loss in a family, in the community. Leave it at that. So I'm called out. The crime scene, if you want to call it that, has not even been cleared. I go in, I try to love on the family, and I leave my number. Three days later, family member calls. Hey, we really don't have a church. I really don't even know how to do this. Will you help us with the funeral? You're the only preacher I know. I'd be glad to. I come over, I sit down with them. And the family member begins to explain to me the religious worldview of the individual who had been lost. And I simply say this. I can respect that worldview. But at the end of the day, I wouldn't be much of a gospel preacher if I didn't share the gospel at this service. And so I'll be glad to do what you're asking me to do. I'll open the service, I'll have a word of prayer, but I'm going to take three to five minutes and I'm going to point everybody to the hope of Jesus Christ. I'm going to share the gospel and I'm going to tell them that Jesus loves them. And I'm going to tell them they have so much value in the Lord. And I'm going to tell them there's a better way in Jesus Christ and there's hope in Christ. And the family member looked back at me and said, well, sir, I am a Christian. But I don't think that would honor the wishes of the deceased. So we'd rather you not take part. Now, I'm not trying to elevate myself. But I got a sneaky suspicion. That the priest of Hosea's day would not only have neglected to share the truths and the laws of God. But they would have embraced any other worldview. That wasn't of him too. If we don't give people Christ, what in God's name have we given them? And if we don't insist that they turn their hearts to Jesus, what have we given them? We can give them all the compassion in our hearts, but that's not going to change their life. We can give them all the love in our hearts, but that's not going to change their life. We can be there and speak tenderly to them on the couch, but that's not going to change their life. It's only when we point them to the goodness and the greatness and the grace and the sacrifice and the love and the cross of Christ that people are changed. And if we're not faithful with that message, we might as well be here in Hosea 4. They were guilty. Not maybe because they were on the street corner Swearing and lying and murdering and stealing and committing adultery even. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But their guilt was in their silence. Prophets of God, declare the whole counsel of God and be faithful to the living truth of God and watch God bless you and protect you and use you. But if you don't, you're among the guilty. Finally, what's the last thing in a courtroom drama? Well, in one scene, we see the charges rendered. In another scene, we see the evidence brought forth. In another scene, we see the tragic, crushing blow that the victims are enduring. In one scene, the camera turns to the guilty. And then finally, just before it goes off, the camera turns to the judge. And we hear the verdict. Look, if you would, in verses 5 and 6. Here's the verdict of righteous God against his priest. You were silent. So because of this, you're going to stumble. The prophets shall also stumble with you by night. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. How do I know they were being silent? Nobody was bearing the knowledge of God's word. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you rejected it. Now I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you've forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. There's an interesting phrase that came to my attention about three minutes before I walked in here. Look at the end of verse five. I will destroy your mother. My God. God's judging their mamas. What does a mother do? Two things, and I'm not relegating everything that a mama does to two things, so everybody relax. But there's two things for sure a good mama does. A good mama will be faithful to take great care of that precious life in that womb, and she'll produce under the blessing and the goodness of God, she'll produce. And then number two, when that precious life comes forth, she'll give compassion and tender care to that baby. I'll destroy your mother, what God's saying. I'm gonna make sure no one like you is produced again. And I'm gonna make sure At the very source of your security and compassion, that's not me, it's gone. I'm going to take away the security you had. I'm going to tell you right now, I've walked with Jesus since 1996, but in 2014, I lost my mama. She died tragically. I was on my way to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. A church had just extended a call to us, and I said, give me two weeks. That was September the 13th, 2014, Dr. Horton. And on September the 13th, 2014, my mama, that Saturday night at about 9 o'clock, dropped dead in her bathroom floor of a massive heart attack. I didn't even get to tell her bye. We had a good relationship and a great relationship, and I realize there might be in here today you can't say that. But tragically, mama's gone. The last thing I remember my mother saying to me other than I love you was, well, honey, my truck can make it to Texas. My mama died believing that we were going to receive and take a call in texas baby my mom my my truck can make it to texas now you got a good mama if she drives a truck you hear me that's a good woman she said well honey my truck can make it to texas and we talked for a minute and then as all good mamas will she said i love you love you too three days later she's with jesus Now, I'm going to tell you, out of a good relationship with my mama. You feel orphaned because there's no loss in your life like mama. You feel orphaned. You feel so alone. And you wrestle through that loss for years. And God said, you have not trusted me. And I can't prove it. But maybe just perhaps, they were finding their security, their nurture from others but God. And God said, I'm going to remove where you find your nurture. And I'm going to remove and make sure the likes of you will not come again. Men of God, teachers of God's word, do we want a holy God to say that to us? I'm going to remove the possibility of another preacher like you ever being produced again. And any nurture you thought you had and wherever you got it, I'm going to remove it because you rejected me. You no longer listen to me. I can no longer listen to you. By the way, that is the greatest judgment of God. It's not always in the locust. It's not always in the lightning bolt. The judgment of God is... You rejected me. I'll give you exactly what you asked for. And like a gentleman, I'm going to sit here on my throne and watch you implode. Men and women of God, when it's all said and done, we don't want to hear the words of our master saying, guilty as charged. Now, the good news is this. long before we were ever born God could have looked at humanity even right here in Hosea 4 and said I'm done with them I'm sick of them I'm tired of bearing with them I'm tired of dealing with them I've given them my word I sent them my priest I provided my prophets now my priests won't speak of me my prophets won't declare my truths I am sick of this generation it's over I'm going to glean my remnant And I'll spend eternity with them. But thanks be to God, long ago in a Bethlehem stable, the righteous judge, knowing that we could no longer bear his wrath, sent someone on our behalf to do what we couldn't do. And when there was no high priest to be faithful, he sent the highest priest to represent him. When there was no prophet to speak, he sent the prophet of glory to speak his truth. When there was no example to follow, he sent the Son of God to bear forth the example. And when I deserved his judgment, he laid his life down on the cross and rose again three days later that if I repent of my sin and follow Christ and his lordship and trust him in repentance, I would not have to hear at the end of days, guilty as charged, but rather redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Priest, prophets, that's our message. We don't want to hear guilty as charged. Let's be faithful. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for stirring Sarah's heart. And the beauty of the word is whether the outline comes from Sarah. Or a group of individuals in homiletics 201. Or a missionary on the backside of Cambodia. Father, your word is faithful. And is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it provides surgery to our souls. So that which is sinful and cancerous could be removed. Father, thank you, thank you. And thank you for the blood of your son. And it's through his blood when we deserve to hear guilty as charged. We can now sing redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Thank you, Father. May we be faithful. May we never be silent. As we declare the salvation of Jesus Christ and him alone. To a lost and dying world. Who by the day stops their ears to the voice of a mighty God. Thank you for the gospel change lives for your glory may we be faithful priests and prophets we ask it all in jesus name amen